Now as we turn to your word, help us to remember this is not an ordinary word. It's not a human word. It's not a mere breath. It's the word of the living God breathed out and inspired. And so uh, may uh, we look to your word now for help and guidance and strength and grace. Send forth your spirit now to be our teacher, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to turn with me in the Word of God. 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And our text this morning is verses 9 through 12. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me, whether you're here, whether you're at home watching this on the live stream, remembering that as we stand before this Word, it's God's Word. So stand with me out of respect for the holy, infallible, inspired, and errant word of the living God. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your business and to work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Uh, There would be some... Um, A school of commentators, thinkers, expositors, analysts who look at our text here this morning, who who would say that this particular portion before us was written for a particular kind of person. And and that person is identified uh, subsequently in the next chapter, in chapter 5, verse 14, as the unruly. And uh, the unruly one is one who would act without discipline, irresponsibly, and live a life characterized as evading obligation. So it's a very specific person that some say this text is addressed to, and they would go over to um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning at verse 6. If you want to read it later on today, you can where the Apostle very clearly addresses this unruly kind of person. Uh, They are those who um, live disordered lives, and the Apostle warns the church to stay away from them. He calls them brothers. He says, stay away from such brothers. In other words, what he's saying by calling them brothers in air quotes is that they profess faith, but their life betrays them. Their life betrays a heartfelt relationship to Jesus Christ, a real genuine faith and trust in Him, their life betrays it because of its moral disorder and total lack of discipline and submission to Christ as King. So um, they would say, well, come to this text, and though Paul doesn't use that word, he's sort of foreshadowing a problem in the church where he is going. There's some merit to that particular interpretation, but uh, I can't hold this uh, position. And and the reason why I can't is because it seems to me that the Apostle Paul here, 
is addressing the whole church. Right? Uh, he says, uh, I- I'm saying brethren abound more. Well, that doesn't sound just like a particular class of people. And, and there's something else that the Apostle Paul does. He speaks to the individual believers within the church and he situates them within a community. Right? There are two groups of people here. There are believers in Christ who are the church and Paul admonishes them to love the brethren. So that's those who are within. But he also says that this community in which we are all a part is broader than the church because it takes in the unbeliever around us as well. So Paul refers to them as the outsider in verse 12. And with respect to both groups, the Apostle Paul says that the individual believer who lives within the scope of this community, which includes the church, those who are within, and the believer, those who are without, it says that the individual believer has special ethical moral obligations and duties towards each. And what's more is he connects those ethical obligations and duties to a transformative end. So I've decided to call this message this morning communal Christian living. And I don't want it to be mistaken by some false understandings of communal, but the reality is this is clearly communal because he is speaking about the life of the individual believer Uh, being placed within a community which consists of two kinds of people, the church and those who are outside. And the apostle makes it very clear that community doesn't swallow up individuality. What he's saying is each individual who is a part of the community has a calling which is to exalt Christ as king within it in order to promote his kingdom. So this is about communal Christian living. And uh, we want to unfold that main theme or idea of the text of of living under Christ in such a way that it blesses all the members of our community. And we're going to take two parts here, two two distinct components, the elements of communal living and the purpose of communal living. The elements of communal living and the purpose. And so let's let's dig apart uh, uh, into our text and pull it apart for a moment, okay? As we think now about the elements and... One of the things I want you to do is look down in your text this morning because what you get is the main verb uh, stuffed away in the middle of our text uh, in verse 10. We urge you. That's your main verb. We urge you. And that um, verb is now modified or qualified by four statements which follow it. And look down your Bible. You should have immediately after we urge you, brethren, the word to. Hope you have that. Because that's the first qualification, to excel more. And you read on to verse 11, it says, and to make. That's your second qualification, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Now, in the New American Standard, you don't have and to attend to your business and to work with your hands, just as we commanded you. But that's exactly what's in the text. The grammar of the text tells us that this main verb, we urge, has four qualifications. And so that uh, consists then, those qualifications consist of the elements of communal Christian living. Uh, The believer is called to love the brethren even more than he's already doing. 
the believer is called here uh, to, as the Apostle Paul says, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. The believer is called to mind their own business. And the believer is called to work, to work hard with their own hands. That's the element or the various elements of this call to the Christian life. And, and then I, I would have you notice the beginning words in verse 12. So that. See? The, the command we urge you has a stated purpose. So that. And then it's unfolded in two parts in verse 12. You will behave properly towards the outsider and not be in any need. And this is where we get the idea of the actions, the moral actions, having a purpose, which is blessing. Blessing. So that's your text uh, at an overview. We just sort of mapped it out because that's what we need to work through. And, and the last thing that I, I do think is important for us uh, to, to think about here just for a moment, to tuck away in our mind and thinking, is to see that the apostle addresses this to brethren. Which means... The apostle is addressing the church as the blood-bought. He's addressing the church as those who believe. He's addressing the church as those who've already been saved. You've had an experience of grace. And so we always want to say that when we deal with texts that feel like they're very ethically heavy and moral duty-oriented, because one of the things that we want to make clear is that when we come across these as believers... They are not uh, a sort of makeshift checklist for us to follow in order that we might get into God's good graces. And the reason we insist upon that is because we're already in God's good graces, not by ourselves, but because of Jesus Christ. There's nothing I can do to add to my standing before the Lord. One of the joys and the consolation of the believer is there's nothing left for me to do. God has already been pleased. He is reconciled. My relationship is on an eternally solid, stable footing because of Christ and his obedience to God's commands in my place. But in view of me having experienced that redemption, there's something I'm called to do as I live under Christ as king, and that's to glorify God. With our life, And so this is very much then like what the Apostle speaks of. No sooner does he talk about grace and being saved by grace in Ephesians 2. He talks about walking in the works which God has beforehand planned out that we should walk in because of grace. That's what we're dealing with here. So the Apostle um, lays out the elements of communal Christian living. And the first one is very obvious. It is to abound more in Christian love. Now, I want you to look at verse 9 because you can see the concept of Christian love there under the phrase, now as to the love of the brethren. And you know what the word there is, is Philadelphia. Not the city, but the concept. The term in Greek means brotherly love. And uh, here's what's something interesting about this word, Philadelphia. Outside of the New Testament, um, this word always meant love of family. It always meant that. That means the love of your mom and dad, or your sister, or your siblings, or your aunt and uncle, or uh, your cousins, and all of this. 
grandmas and grandpas. It was always about family love. But in the New Testament, it's always about something different. In the New Testament, this word is always about love of believers for one another. In fact, the, the idea of family love almost evaporates from the meaning of the word as it's used in the New Testament. And this word now becomes the heart of that quality of life, which is to characterize the believer. Just listen to this. John 13. Uh, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Romans 12.10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Hebrews 13.1. The preacher says, let love of the brethren continue. 1 Peter 1.22 says, Since you have um, uh, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. 2 Peter 1.7 says, Add to your brotherly kindness love. 1 John 4.21 says, and this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Philadelphia, see? This is all over the New Testament. In fact, it cuts across everything. It cuts across the Gospels, Acts, the letters, Paul, John, Peter, Preacher, the whole bunch. This is so uh, all-pervasive and so defining. I want us to know that this morning. The command that the Apostle Paul lays before the church is one that is a persistent duty of the believer. But here's the thing that he adds to it, which is very interesting to us. As you look now down to the end of verse 10, he says, we urge you, brethren, to excel more. So this is to be plugged back into the idea of love of the brethren. And the apostle says, you are to excel still more. Now, the thing that's so interesting about this is that um, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that they're already doing that. Would you please look at the first word of verse 10 for me? What is the word? It's for. It is for. And what that tells us is the Apostle Paul is signaling he is about to give an explanation for something he's just said. And what has he just said? He's just said in verse 9 that this church overflows with love. Notice this. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need that I write to you or anyone else. See that? He says you have no need for me to write to you about it. And why? Because verse 10 tells you for. Notice here now the language of the text. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all of Macedonia. Why don't they need to be told? Because they're doing it. Practicing is a present tense verb. They are now doing it. And, uh, well, you could leave it at that, couldn't you? But if you, if you really want to blow it out of the park, you do what Paul says next. You're not just doing it, but now we add qualification to it. You're doing it toward all of the brethren who are in your church? No. To all who are in Macedonia, your whole country. That, that is a pervasive practice, isn't it? 
if we were to say this morning that, that all of you here this morning were practicing blood, uh, brotherly love to, to all of the believers in California, that would be to say a lot, wouldn't it? Now, now here is the really astonishing thing. Thessalonica was a port city, which meant that people uh, hopped on ships and came there for commerce and, and probably leisure and travel and so forth. But people from all over were constantly filtering through the city. And the Thessalonians looked at those people and they discerned something as the crowds came through. They discerned who the people of God were. And when they looked upon them, they saw a reflection in the mirror. They saw those who had tasted of the blood of Christ just as they, and they understood something, they now had a new family member. And they welcomed them as such, and they loved them. You see, they, uh, they took it very seriously to be a member of the church. They understood what a wonderful privilege it was to be under Christ. And whenever they saw somebody else who had the same name Christian, the same profession of faith, the same hearty trust in the Savior, what did they do? They embraced them and they loved them. But Paul says, do more. And when you hear that, you almost fall off your chair. What? How could I do more? This morning, if I'm loving all the brethren in Macedonia, what constitutes more? Do I have to love everybody in Greece and in Asia and in Antioch and Jerusalem as well? Well, Paul leaves it open, but the reality is what the Apostle Paul says. You've had a great start. There's no time to rest. It's no time to stop. He says they are to excel more. Now listen to Calvin's quote here because it's, it's a beauty. Okay. He says, the nature of Christian love is such that it's always practiced and never mastered. Hear that? It's the nature of Christian love that it is practiced, but it is never mastered. And then he goes on to say, whatever appears in us a high state of excellence, we must desire to do better. This is where the law starts meddling with all this. Huh? Every time we think we've attained something... The law comes right next to us and sits down right beside us and says, you haven't done enough. And this is why legalism is such a dead end. This is why the believer could never have any assurance of hope, uh, could never have a clear conscience before the Lord if they had to rely upon their obedience to the law to get into good graces with God. Because it's never enough. You see, Paul is not talking about their salvation. We already got that covered. They're brethren. They're under the blood. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to their account. The issue here is what has God called you to do? And the thing that the Apostle Paul isolates is this. Because you have received the riches of the overflow of divine grace, here's God's call. And it's unyielding. You are to love the brethren even more. That's you this morning. That's your calling as a part of this community here. Your calling towards this church is to love all of the brethren more than you do now. 
somebody might be saying, yeah, but there's some people in this church that rub me the wrong way. And God would say, perfect. That's where still more begins. Learn to love everyone. And you say, how in the world can I do this? How in the world can I do this? I'm already struggling to love people. I'm irritable. I don't like to be bothered. I've got enough to do in my life already. How in the world can I excel more? And, and I would point you to the motives for it this morning, which, is our, uh, which, are, which are in our text here. And, and there's one powerful one, one that's sort of latent that we need to draw from another text. But, but one very powerful motive here is in verse 9. At the end of the verse, the apostle, after having said, you have no need that I have to write to you about this brotherly love deal, he says, for, now he's explaining again why he doesn't need to write to them, and he pulls out the most astonishing thought. Why doesn't Paul or any other apostle or any other preacher need to write to them about loving the brethren? And Paul's answer is, for you are taught by God. He bypasses all this other stuff, right? He bypasses the written word, if you will. And he goes, he goes straight to something that you probably wouldn't have thought of and reached for. In fact, this word God taught is not used anywhere else in Greek before this. So most scholars would think that the apostle coined this term on his own. But the reality is the apostle Paul is reaching back into the Old Testament for a concept which was supposed to characterize the new. Now there's a bunch of texts I could drag you through this morning and I, I, I was going to do that. And I was going to have a whole sermon on this great idea of being taught by God. But I realize I can pretty much summarize it for you in a thumbnail sketch in a way that you get it. And uh, one of those passages which speaks about it is Isaiah 54, 13. The prophecy about the new covenant era says, all your sons will be taught by the Lord. That's easy to understand. You can go over to um, Jeremiah 31 and uh, 33 and following, where we have the prophecy of, of the new covenant administration of the covenant of grace. And once again there, you'll learn about the promise that that no one needs to be taught because they'll all be taught by the Lord. What does it mean to be taught by the Lord? To know Him. Uh, I came across this little nugget in Jeremiah twenty two sixteen, and here's what it says. He pled the cause of the afflicted and the needy. Then it was well. Is not that what it means to know me, declares the Lord. God himself says that for a person to be taught by him or to bear the qualities or characteristics or, or attitudes of, of having been taught by him, it will be manifested in this. They plead, they have a concern for, they care about the poor and the needy. In other words, brotherly love. And as you come into the New Testament, you see all of this fulfilled now through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. One of the signature verses which 
ties all of these strands together is Romans 5.5, where the Apostle Paul says that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So I didn't need to preach this to you uh, already, people of God, because you are learning about something that you already knew. Not because you read it from the Bible, but because from the moment the Spirit of God took up residence in your soul, when He regenerated you, when He gave you a new heart, when He began to uh, dwell in you, you became a classroom. And God, the teacher, and the lesson was, love thy neighbor as thyself. When you think this morning about the duty of not just loving the brethren, but excelling still more, the motive that you lay hold of is that you're God's student. He is your teacher. He has made it profoundly clear through the indwelling of the Spirit of God within you, having poured out the love of God in your heart. He's made it abundantly plain to you that your life is never the same anymore. Instead of looking within, it looks without. It looks to the left and the right and the front and the rear. And it says, my calling is to love my neighbor. My calling is to love the brethren. God started teaching that and he never stopped it. You know it this morning. There's something else though that plays into it, and I've already signaled it here when I addressed this at the outset when I said that the, um, the instruction here, an ethical admonition, is to the brethren. It says, we urge you brethren. You see, that means that this is a command given to the blood-bought, the redeemed. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, Peter talks about this, and he connects it to to the love of the brethren. We've already read the verse. It was 1 Peter 1.22 when, when, when Peter there says, having purified your, your soul for the love of the brethren, love with a pure heart fervently for you have been born again by the Spirit of God. There you have a twofold foundation for the command. Uh, a, a purified soul, that means a soul washed in the blood and a new heart, which is regeneration, uh, being born again by the very Spirit of God, a sovereign administration of grace. And because of that twin, twofold experience of grace, your brethren. And everybody else who's had that is your family. Everyone who has had that now is your family. And the moral duty is clear. You're to love the brethren. How do we do this? We keep reminding ourselves of the riches poured out upon us. God is our teacher. God is impressing upon us all the time what he would have us do, his own will, that he loves us and that he will replicate that love within us towards those who are his. And he would remind us again and again and again, when you are weary of loving people, you're to be reminded that God loved you. 
He sent forth his son to die for you. And that having experienced that grace, now indwelt by the spirit who sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts, you're equipped as well as called. The first act of duty towards the community is to take all of the strength within you spiritually and grab yourself by the collar and say, I've got a duty to perform. I do. Take it as a personal admonition this morning. You're called to something. And it's important. Love of the brethren. That's the first element of the communal living. And the second one now is uh, located at the beginning of verse 11. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Uh, The apostle says they are to aspire. We are to aspire. We are to have ambition. We are to be goal-oriented. And the goal orientation of the believer is to have a quiet life. And I don't think this is about volume. I don't think this is about noise. This is about demeanor. It is about manner. It is about behavior. It is about order and discipline. It's about how we get along. Its antonym is agitation, external conflict and distress. That's not to be you. You're to make it your ambition as a believer to be settled and composed. And you are to live in your treatment of others in such a way that you are quiet. You are not contentious. You don't agitate. You don't provoke. You don't stir up challenges. The way you live in community is with this peaceful, quiet, winsome restraint we have an example of this 1 Peter chapter 3 the apostle is speaking to Christian wives who got redeemed and saved after their marriage it seems like and here they are stuck with this pagan Gentile unbelieving husband and what would that godly woman want more than anything in life but for her spouse to be in Christ with her I'm sure that was quite a struggle for some of these women and it still happens in in the church and Peter's advice is so masterful because it's so opposite of our intuition we can imagine, uh, you know, going out and stocking up on a, on a whole bunch of coffee cups. They have John 3.16 and Bible verses. So every time you're serving up coffee in the morning, subtle little hints for the gospel. Little post-it notes with uh, gospel promises and all kinds of, um, you know, just keeping Christ before them. You know what Peter says? You will win your husband without a word if you do this. Lead a quiet and peaceable life. If you are characterized by a gentle and quiet spirit, the hidden person of the heart will prevail. This is the same word here. Not cantankerous, not challenging, not provocative, not an agitator. Gentle, restrained in demeanor. Bearing the fruit of the Spirit in how you act. 
But here the apostle Paul takes that word and he applies it to every believer and says, this is to be how you are towards everyone. Not revolutionaries. Not agitators. Not provokers. Not pot stirrers. Quiet. Notice the third element of the communal Christian living. And I've summarized it like this. Mind your own business. That's basically what it's saying here. Attend to your own business. Now, here's where I think, if you want to illustrate what could be in view, is where you'd flip over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Because here, the Apostle Paul says, We hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no working at all, but acting like busy bodies. See that? Busy bodies. Meddlers. Always poking around in other people's life and other people's affairs, other people's relationships, other people's attitudes, other people's work, other people's family. You see what I'm saying? Busybodies. Those who think it's um, their gift to the world to be meddlesome, to get involved in everybody's business except for their own. That's essentially the heart of what a busybody is. A busybody is either a person who is overcome with overweening pride such that they think they are so good and so insightful and so wise and so together and have the secret silver bullet of success that they just got to share it with everybody all of the time or the meddlesome busybody is a person who doesn't care for themselves. Their life is a disaster. It's a ruin. It's incomplete. It's disfigured. It's marred. And they are not willing to spend the self-discipline and time and effort on themselves. So they're really quick to go around correcting everybody else. The apostle said, if you're a believer, that's not you. You are not to be a meddler or a busybody. And you know where he got that from? Jesus. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? That Jesus tells the... It's the, it's the very humorous statement. Remove the log from your own eye before you remove the splinter from your neighbors. Think of it. The absurdity is what makes it so powerful. To have such a glaring, obvious, dominant feature about you, and then you turn around and find somebody who's got a speck of the problem you have and go out of your way to make sure that they know that you know they've got that speck there and I've got to help you. No, the Apostle Paul says that the way the Christian lives in the church and in the community in a way that blesses other people is that you mind your own business. You're not a fixer. God didn't call you that. In fact, this ought to be a world of relief to all believers. God did not put on your shoulders the duty to fix everybody by meddling in their life. What God put on your shoulders this morning as a believer is to mind your business. 
Oh, sure, if uh, somebody needs your encouragement, come alongside them. If somebody asks you privately for some wisdom, break it off to them gently and carefully. But other than that, the, the, the duty of the believer is not to run around buttonholing people, meddling in their life, and sharing their wisdom with them. No, it's not your calling. Your calling is to mind your business. And the apostle is the one that says it. Finally, what does he say about uh, communal living? Here he says, work with your hands. Work with your hands. He says, work with your hands just as we have commanded you. Now, I think it's interesting that he doubles down here, right? He says, work with your hand. By the way, I already told you to work with your hands. Why such an emphasis? And I think there's some good reasons. One is because the Greeks disdained labor. The elite Greeks thought that work was for slaves and dolts. You were a loser if you were a worker. They had contempt for the manual laborer. To the Greek, the best life was the contemplative life. You didn't do, you thought. And the people who got their hands dirty doing, well, they were the lower class, the hoi polloi. They were the crazy ones. So there's that attitude out there. I can't see that would completely account for this. But it's so radically unbiblical because if you think about it, really, the first command set in the Bible is in Genesis 1.28. It says, uh, multiply and subdue the earth, which means work. When God, I've said this before, um, when God made man, he, he gave him two things, a sword and a shovel. Conquest and cultivation. Those are the metaphors behind the actual Hebrew terms that are used there. A sword and a shovel. And he made man's identity as the image of God bound up with work because God works. His work to create the world. And so this is the believer's identity. And so it's not surprising to us when in the New Testament, the, the proclamation of grace is made, a component part of the restoration of the image of God in man emerges as man taking on his kingly duty of working. And it's a gospel issue. It is a gospel issue. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, 28, He who steals must steal no longer. He must labor, performing with his hands so that he has something to share. See that? Work is what you're called to. And by the way, Calvin says, don't, don't get distracted with your hands. He says, this, this is about all lawful vocation. So maybe your job's in a cubicle, typing in a typewriter. I don't know. Whatever your lawful vocation is, this is what this is about. And the believer is to have that job so they can provide for themselves and have something to offer others. And then I would say also, as you can see here from the rest of verse 12, the believer is not to be in any need. We'll talk about that more in a moment, which means that the call here is for self-sustenance, self-reliance, self-provision. Jesus Christ didn't make the church into a commune. It's a community, not a commune. Very different. 
So here's your elements of communal Christian living. He says that you're to love the brethren, that you are to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work. What's the purpose of it all? Let's turn now to see the purpose. We've already noted here how clearly it's spelled out. We have the main verb in verse 10. We urge you. We've seen the four qualifiers. And now we see the purpose statement at the beginning of verse 12. So that we know that whatever follows the so that spells out the purpose of why Paul has given these commands to the believer. So let's look at the first one here. You can see what comes uh, right after the so that in verse 12 is that you will behave properly towards the outsider. And the good news is for you this morning, when you think about this word properly, being good Presbyterians, you already know the meaning of this. Because you'll remember the theme verse of Presbyterianism is 1 Corinthians 14.40, right? Do everything decently and in order. Same word. Properly, fittingly, orderly, disciplinedly, if you will. And um, it's a moral idea. It's not just about etiquette, etiquette or manners or something or custom. It is a moral idea because Paul uses this very same word, for instance, in, in Romans 13, where he says uh, to the believer there to behave properly. And then he lists a whole series of if immoral behaviors. He says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other. But by placing the, the duty to behave properly in contrast to immoral actions, very obvious that doing things decently and properly is about doing things morally. It's a moral matter. And so here, what the Apostle Paul is saying, all of these commands that unpack what it means about being urged to do something, they have a goal. It's so that you would walk morally. You would walk fittingly. You would walk properly. So all those things we just talked about, love of the brethren, aspiring to lead a quiet life, minding your own business, working hard, those are matters of morality. And let me just say here this morning, we get our morality from the word of God. I am sick of hearing people talk about those aren't our values. Well, tell me, where did you get your values from? Did you pick them out of thin air? Did you vote on it by committee? Did a lab full of white coats decide what morality was? What is what, university professors? What's your morality? Our morality is from the word of God. It's what his law says. For something to be moral, it must be stable. It must be defined. It must be unchanging. Morality can't change. Otherwise, it's not moral. So... It has to have a, the ability to command. Well, this is morality, not the whole of it, but a part of it. And the thing here, the Apostle Paul says, is that this behavior is for somebody properly towards outsiders, which means the unbeliever. The calling here for the Apostle to the church is the believer walks within community. He's got one foot in the church, yes, but he also lives in the world. He's not of the world, but he's still in the world, which means that he's always around, interacting with, rubbing elbows with, living next door to unbelief. And he's got a duty. 
You've got a duty this morning. You've got a moral obligation. It's living properly before the outsider. Calvin says this. They were to have a good testimony for the gospel's sake among the unbelievers in their community. Calvin says all of these moral obligations, this, this, this proper and decent walk is a morality which is to be lived out, not just toward the church, yes, there, but also towards the unbeliever. And it's lived this way before the unbeliever. It is to have a gospel aim and impact. I read it again. They were to have a good testimony for the gospel's sake among the unbelievers. Our calling this morning, people of God, is to have a gospel aim and a kingdom aim to our life. That's what Paul says. When you love the brethren, it has a gospel aim. Jesus himself said so. When you love one another, the world will know you're my disciples. When you lead a quiet and orderly life, uh, as the Apostle Paul says, the unbelieving husband will be won, not by the words... by the quiet demeanor and character of the wife. It'll be a point of gospel witness. The door will be open. God will use that as a means. But it's interesting here that he connects all of this to need, right? So look at the second part of your verse where you see the second purpose. Uh, They're to live this way so that they will not be in any need. And I think this is a very important message that the church really needs to embrace, first of all, internalize, understand, make a part of their philosophy of life, and then speak to the world because we are bombarded with messaging from the political establishment and academic establishment today that is boisterous, as boisterous as it is misguided and wrong, which basically glamorize sluggards. It says it's okay not to work. In fact, we have people proposing universal basic income so that we won't work. And we'll be all provided for by Uncle Sam. What a lie. But everybody's talking this way, so we we make it a virtue to be idle and lazy and sluggardly. Here the Apostle Paul says it's a matter of morality that you work so that you provide for your need. And by the way, it is a gospel issue. Paul wraps it around the gospel in 1 Timothy 5.8. He says, if anyone doesn't provide for his own, especially for his household, he's denied the faith. Why isn't the church teaching this? To refuse to work, to provide, to be lazy, to be idle, to be a sluggard is a gospel issue. It is to deny Christ. That's what Paul says. It's to deny the faith. It's to be worse, the apostle says, than an unbeliever. Christianity teaches industry, thrift, diligence, labor, hard work. Because it demands of the individual, as long as they are able, that they provide for themselves within the, with the framework of, of their family. And so this is exactly why we don't have time 
to be loud and disruptive and brash and cantankerous and nettlesome because we have a calling. And if we fail in that, the watching world will look at us and learn something about the gospel that it should never learn. And so as I start to think about what is this all about for our application this morning, I thought there's a whole bunch of different things that we could come up. But the one thing that I wanted to leave us with, like a sharp arrow sinking into the target here, is if I put all of this together and I see the Apostle Paul is dressing the individual believer and he's saying you're a part of a community and that community means that you're a part of the church and it means you're a part of those around you who are unbelievers and you have duties towards both of them. And that the whole behavior that the Apostle Paul prescribes is this morality, this moral uh, set of duties is something you owe to this community. It began to, uh, to, to emerge in my thinking here that, that Christian uh, communal living has a purpose, which is transformation. And it's a word that's got muddied up and bloodied up and kicked around. And some people today in the Reformed world think that it's not a very good word. But I think it's a very good word because it tells you something about what is the aim of all that we're doing here. And the aim of what we're doing ought to be transformation. It ought to be making the world come under Christ. We hear all this um, gobbledygook, utopian talk, make the world a better... That's not what we're interested in. What we are interested in is bringing the world under Christ. Because when people are under Christ, it's a blessing to them. And so it's transformative. We walk the way we do in order that it has a gospel aim. A kingdom impact. It transforms. It transforms from one heart to the other, one person to the next. The apostle is saying to the Thessalonians, it's great that you have a church in town, but that's not an end to itself. That church and that town, the Apostle Paul says, is to have an impact for the kingdom of God and for the advancement of the gospel. Your behavior has a bearing upon your neighbor who doesn't know Christ. And the design of it all is to bring them under his dominion. And the entry point is how you act. The gospel is to have a rich and overflowing impact upon the world. The church is being called to have a rich and overflowing impact upon the world. And when we see this, we need to make it very clear that Christianity has an impact, a transformative impact upon culture and the world around us, not by revolution. And I think it's so important that we state this really out loud today. Because Christianity is not revolutionary. It's not. We are not disruptors. We are not protesters. We don't advance the kingdom by force. Revolution is about filling the streets with loud, boisterous people who shout so loud that no one can talk or hear or think. It's about rounding up a Twitter mob to cancel. It's about uh, massing such numbers that it topples things over and destroys. That's not Christianity. It is not a revolution. We don't do that. 
I defy you to look in the New Testament and see Jesus, Paul, Peter, or any of the apostles leading sit-ins, burning flags in front of city hall, vandalizing public parks, shouting, mobbing, screaming. And yet, Christianity changed antiquity. One of the things that historians debate about and can't seem to find the answer to is how in the world did a band of 120 people change everything? And believe me, they changed a lot. Paganism fell within three centuries of Christ. That's astonishing, given that it was the dominant religion throughout the history of the world. Politics changed, marriage changed, family changed, the meaning of life changed, love for the unborn changed, legislation changed. I mean, there are so many things, it's, it's, you can't even categorize all the different ways in which Christianity changed the world. And it did it without a riot or a protest or a sit-in or a revolution. It did it person to person. And as the gospel preached... As Christ was proclaimed and as people lived out their faith in the world, there was transformation. No shots were fired. No bullhorns were required. It was Christians leading a quiet life, minding their business, working and loving the brethren, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. No swords, no mobs, no noise. And how did that work? Where did they get it? And the answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did not prescribe revolution. He prescribed, he prescribed transformation. It's the verse you learned on your mama's knee. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way they see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. He prescribed it. That's what it was. The believer is commanded to let their light shine. Matthew Poole says that is, that is moral behavior. Christ prescribed behavior. They'll let it shine. It's a command. And the mechanism of shining that light is good works. That is obedience prescribed by the law of God. And the place in the sphere of it is before men. It's towards the outside. It's before the watching world. It's for the unbeliever to see. And the aim of it all, Jesus says, so that when they see you behave like a Christian, when they see how you live for Christ, they will turn and glorify the Father in heaven because they will perceive that it comes from a divine origin. You see, Jesus calls us to wear his name well. It's spelled out for us. How do you wear his name well? You let your light shine in good works. You have some of them listed here, loving the brethren. When you love the brethren, you're advancing the gospel. I want you to know that this morning. When you love the brethren, you are advancing the gospel. Quiet life, advancing the gospel. Minding your business, advancing the gospel. Working with your hands, advancing the gospel. As we do this person to person, as we live out this faith before the world, we pray. We ask God to use these as entry points. God does the work. And so this morning, people of God, we need to see what the Apostle Paul sets before us is nothing else but what Jesus prescribed. And the reality is this is what's needed. 
the reality is this is precisely what is needed right now. We need now more than ever for the church to be the church. We need now more than ever for disciples to be disciples under Christ. The world does not have the tools or ability or wisdom or strength to heal its problems. But Christ, as he sets forth these principles in his word, instructs us this morning how we live in community in a way that blesses the community, the people of God, and serves as a great witness to those who are around. This sin-broken world needs this. And so this morning, remind us that the Apostle Paul has given this call not to the unruly. He gave it to all of us, and I know that, because he said, we are Jew brethren. Let's heed the call and take up the task and pray and work for this great spiritual transformation under Christ. Father, we thank you for your word and how it outlines for us the Christian life. It's not for us to think about or to create or come up with on our own. It's ours to learn as we sit at the, at the foot of your word. Constrain us this morning, first of all, of the love of Christ for us, that, that your love has been poured out in our heart. Your spirit dwells there. We have been redeemed. The good news is ours. But the good news is to shape us so that we, uh, we light up the world for Christ. So place that desire in our heart to uh, be those who would be like lamps, as Jesus said, set up in a room which casts its light all around. That's what we're called to. Lord, uh, thank you for the very concrete instruction this morning. Help us to embrace it. That we would be quiet. That we would not be meddlesome. That we would be industrious and hardworking. And that we would be uh, giving our utmost to excelling still more at loving the brethren. And as we do that, Lord, would you use that in order to help us bless a broken community around us. That Jesus Christ would be exalted, his gospel promoted, the church uh, um, expanded, and the, uh, the hopelessness and the rotting despair of idolatry would be swept away and replaced with uh, the joy and peace in the Holy Ghost, which is what the kingdom of God is all about. Hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.